Friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me by turning to Psalm 94. Don't you just love God's Word? This, this morning's message is titled, Obnoxious Enemies, but Omnipotent God. When speaking about the Christian life, John Piper says this, Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. Biblical stories help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange terms. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now listen, friend, wherever you are at on this winding and troubled road of life, the author of Psalm 94 pulls up beside us this morning and invites us to take a ride with him. Through this chapter, he takes us along his progression of thought as he experiences his own set of switchbacks and setbacks, winding and troubled roads. And along the drive throughout this chapter, we're going to find him leaning over the console, pointing to landmarks along the way, and showing us God's grace. As we arrive at the destination, we can imagine him putting the car in park, leaning over to us and saying, I have one last thing to say to you. Listen. Give me your attention. You must remember this. The loud taunts of the enemy should never rattle your confidence in the firm promises of God. The loud taunts of the enemy should never rattle your confidence in the firm promises of God. So if you would now, please join me by turning your attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message, the reading of God's holy, infallible, authoritative, and inspired word. Psalm 94, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. The Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. 
For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Let's take a second and go to the Lord in prayer asking for his much-needed help, both in my preaching of his word and then in our hearing and applying of his word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. Lord, would you please fill me afresh with the Spirit that I might preach as I ought, as I should. And Lord, I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first point this morning is how to pray while experiencing injustice. Verses 1 to 7. Well, the world in which the psalmist, who's writing Psalm 94, the world in which he lives in during these days is a sad and a complicated world. From the context of this chapter, we can determine that their backs are against the wall. His back and the people of God, their back is against the wall as a group of powerful And influential people are taking advantage of the pious and genuine people of God. But what makes this situation so complicated, in addition to that, is that the oppressors are people who claim to be God's people. That would complicate things, right? The oppressors themselves are people who are claiming to be God's people. The people that the author of Psalm 94 is writing about are people claiming to be God's people. Now, how do we know this? We know this for a few reasons. First, because the oppressors say this in verse 7. They say the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the covenant name of God. The Lord does not see the God of Jacob, the God of covenants. That's language reserved for the people of God. Does not perceive. The second is because in verse 20, he says this. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Which seems to indicate to me that these people are claiming that they are allied with God. Or that God is allied with them. Now, this isn't a rare occurrence in the Old Testament for people claiming to be God's people oppressing the genuine and pious people of God. There are many occasions throughout the Old Testament 
where the prophets tell us about kings and rulers who oppressed and abused God's people, such as those that Ezekiel tells us about in Ezekiel 34 when he says, The shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against the shepherds. Now, societal influences and power were not on the people's side. We're not on God's people's side in Psalm 94. Yet, the author reminds them of someone who is altogether more powerful, who is indeed on their side. And with that confidence, grounding his life, he calls on the people of God to pray. To begin, his prayer models an appeal to God's righteousness. He says this in verse 1. He says, O Lord, God of vengeance, shine forth. Now, I think the word vengeance has a pretty negative reputation in our day, so it begs the question... What does this word tell us about God? Now, I want to teach you something about Bible reading, fundamentals of Bible reading 101. One of the most important things when we're reading our Bible and we encounter a word, a phrase, a chapter, a section which is hard to understand, one of the best things that we can do when we come across something like that is to simply keep reading. Keep reading because oftentimes the next passage or the next chapter, the next section is going to illuminate. It's going to shed light on what the author meant in the section that is more challenging for us to understand. And that's certainly the case here when the author says this, Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Now, what are the proud doing? In verse 4, he says this, they pour out their arrogant words. Verse 5, they crush your people. They afflict your heritage. Verse 6, they kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. This is a nightmare situation that the psalmist finds himself in, that the people of God in the context of Psalm 94 find themselves in. These powerful and influential individuals who are claiming to be godly are not using their influence and their power to bless and protect God's people, but instead the psalmist says that they are crushing and afflicting and killing God's people. And to make matters worse, their response to the pious people of God, when they stand out, when the pious people of God call on this group of individuals to repent, to turn back, to use their power, to use their influence, to use use these things to bless God's people, to protect God's people, their response Verse 7, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Now listen, I can't read this section, this section of Scripture, 
without thinking about Jesus, without thinking about the life of Jesus, the, the, the situation in which Jesus steps into during his own ministry. My mind goes to the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, those who had power, those who had influence, those who, who were called to teach God's word to God's people, to be salt and light in their community. But instead of faithfully teaching God's word to care for God's people, they were guilty of crushing God's people under the weight of the law. But unlike their obnoxiousness, Jesus gently communicates to his people a gracious promise, a sweet promise. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29, he says, Jesus says, in this taxed day, in this heavy laden day, he says to the people, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In this section, the psalmist models for us how we are to pray when we are experiencing injustice. And Jesus reminds us that though we may experience heavy and crushing burdens from those claiming to be his people, We should run to him and to him alone to find rest for our weary and heavy-laden hearts. At least to our second point this morning, what is God doing while I am suffering? Verses 8 through 11. What is God doing while I am suffering? Do you have any stories in your life from your past where you had the right motives, but your methods may have been in the wrong, wrong delivery? I certainly do, and that should be no surprise to you if you've heard any of my stories. This is just right on par with the rest of them. As I was studying this section of Psalm 94, I was reminded of one of those situations from my college days. This was in my early college days, soon after I came to faith in Christ. I was a new Christian and was zealous for the name of the Lord, which you should be. You should be that way at conversion. You should be that way at your death. And I had just become a new Christian and was zealous for Christ's name. And I was in a class that had these two or three individuals who repeatedly used God's name in vain. They continued to use God's name as a cuss word. And class after class went by, day after day went by until I was finally moved to say something. Now, Don't get me wrong. I am not questioning whether or not I should have said something. I certainly agree that I should. I certainly agree that if you're in a context like that, it's a great occasion for witness. But I do doubt that what I said was the best thing to have said in the way that I said it. You can imagine the situation. I'm in a classroom full of computers and desks, and they're on one side of the desk, and I'm on the other. And so I lean my face across the desk through the computer screens, and I said, do you guys know that God can hear you? And I didn't just whisper this. I said it with confidence. To be honest, I said it with such confidence that I expected at that moment to experience to witness conversions. I thought for certain that like John and James, the sons of thunder, that God was going to rain down 
and convert them. But that didn't happen. In fact, they looked at me puzzled, totally perplexed as to why what I said had any relevance to anything that they had said. So what did I do? I doubled down. I tripled down. I quadrupled down. I repeated the same thing countless times. So they looked at me puzzled and said, what? I said, do you know that God can hear you? What? Do you know that God can hear you? I said this over and over again until finally we reached a stalemate. And we all stopped talking. It was an awkward occasion. Now, they walked away, probably, I don't know, but they probably walked away with a greater awareness of the fact that God hears them. But I'm not so confident that they left understanding why they should consider that to be an issue on that occasion because I didn't take the liberty of explaining anything. I just kept repeating Do you know God hears you? Yes, I understand. He has ears. I have ears. Why does that matter? I don't know. Do you know that he hears you? Well, the psalmist wants the oppressors to feel the weight of God's awareness in all their dealings with his people and to understand why they should consider that to be an issue. He wants them to feel. He wants them to be captivated. He wants the weight of the reality that God hears, sees, knows all these things to fall on them. He wants them to understand that to be an issue. In direct contrast to their arrogant statement about God's total disregard of his people in verse 7, the psalmist fills our minds with promises of God's engaged interest and care over the details of our lives beginning in verse 9. The psalmist provides for us here a series of he-who statements and then follows them with a promise, a series of promises beginning with he-does statements. He says, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Now for me, friends, I have found that the real power found in trusting in the promises of God comes when I connect them to the person of Jesus Christ. Promises by themselves can feel abstract at times. They can feel to be lofty. But when we take hold of promises and connect them to the life to the ministry, to the person, and to the work of Jesus Christ, they sprout legs and run us down, and they grow arms, and they wrap us up. So when the psalmist says, he who planted the ear, does he not hear? My mind goes to several occasions in the life and the ministry of Jesus when he heals the deaf. Or on the occasion when he's standing in the garden And soldiers come to get him, come to seize him, to take him to the crucifixion. And one of the disciples hops out with sword in hand 
and takes the sword and cuts off a soldier's ear. And Jesus stops the situation, reaches down onto the floor of the earth, picks up the man's ear, and places it back upon his enemy's head. And he can hear again. He's healed. When he says, when the psalmist says, he who formed the eye, does he not see? My mind goes to several occasions in the life and ministry of Jesus, but foremost to the situation in John chapter 9 when Jesus is walking by the silent pool and upon seeing a man who had been blind from birth, had been blind for the entirety of his life, how old, however old he was at this point in his life, he had been blind from birth. Jesus sees this man, knows that he's been blind from forever because he knows all things and is moved in, in compassion to heal him. I think that if we use a little bit of imagination for this man and his life, we can picture this abandoned man saying on countless occasions throughout his life, God, do you see me? Do you see me? Do you see that I can't see? Do you see that I'm at this pool seeking healing? And I've been doing this because I've given up hope that you'll do anything about it. So I'm seeking healing somewhere else. Do you see me? I'm supposed to be your covenant people. Do you see me? And then Jesus answers that question personally. The God who made the eyes sees even the most downcast among us. And we see that promise personified in the person of Jesus as he heals a blind man. When the psalmist says, he who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? My mind goes to Matthew 23, as Jesus is just hours from the cross, and he stands at the edge of Jerusalem, and he weeps for her. And at the same time, he predicts, he, he foretells her destruction. And when the psalmist says, he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but of breath. Listen. You know where my mind goes when I hear that about Yahweh in Psalm 94? My mind goes to several occasions in the life and ministry of Jesus. First to Mark 127 when Jesus teaches. When he begins his ministry, he opens the word, he begins to teach. And the people respond by saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. My mind also goes to the several occasions when Jesus was able to perceive into the thoughts of the Pharisees. He knew their thoughts. The man, the God-man, fully God, fully man, walking the dust of the earth, ministering to enemies and the people of God alike, able to perceive the thoughts of everybody's minds and hearts. Friends, these are promises. These are realities. These are weighty realities that fall on us. And these, these realities can feel so lofty, lofty, but when we take them and bring them down and we see 
we see them in the person of Jesus Christ. We can experience true power. We can experience real power in taking hold and believing these promises of God. At least to our third point this morning. Who am I to God while enemies taunt? Who am I to God while enemies taunt? Verses 12 to 15. Now the psalmist, just to recap quickly, the psalmist started off this chapter in prayer. He's teaching us how to pray during days of injustice. Then he transitions in the second point to address his enemies personally. But now in these verses, in our third point, he takes time to build up the downcast. His heart here is to teach, as John Piper says from our opening quote, that God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. As complicated as this situation is, for the human mind to comprehend is not outside the control and the power of the Lord. As complicated as the situation is in the life of the psalmist where, the, where people claiming to be God's people are oppressing God's genuine and pious people, as complicated as that situation is for our minds, Lord, how do I make sense of this? It is not complicated and it is not outside the control and the power of the Lord. But though the faithless are mingled in among the faithful, God has not lost track of who is truly his. He teaches us here that discipline is a defining mark of the godly. Discipline is a defining mark of the godly. (laughs) You may not have want to have heard that this morning, that discipline is a defining mark of God's people, but it's true. God's discipline is a defining mark of the godly. And to be disciplined by the Lord, it means this. It means to be taught and trained in godliness. It does not mean to be punished by the Lord. The good news for the Christian this morning is that there remains no punishment for us to face from God the Father. There is no wrath remaining for us to face because all of our sins that deserve punishment, that deserve God's righteous indignation, His righteous wrath was placed upon the perfect, spotless Son of God on that cross. And He died in our place and for our sins. So there is no punishment left for us to face. Only Discipline, only training and teaching in righteousness. So contrary to what we naturally consider to be a blessed life, we are reminded, as Paul says to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You could even say, will suffer. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So what expectations should the godly have in this life? The godly 
should discern trials and troubles to be a divine means by which God is training the Christian to be devoted disciples. God doesn't bring trials and troubles in our life because he hates us, because he's mad at us, or because he's forgotten the Christian. But as the book of Hebrews says, God disciplines those that he loves, Hebrews 12, 6. God disciplines those that he loves. God trains and teaches in righteousness those that he loves. And as this verse says, the blessed person is the one who is taught and who applies God's word. These enemies who are mingled in among God's people during the days of Psalm 94 have separated themselves in two ways. They are not disciplined by the Lord, and they do not submit to the authority of God's word in their lives. But God knows who they are. And he says they won't sneak into heaven unnoticed. In verse 13, he promises rest from days of trouble to his people while warning his enemies that a pit is dug for the wicked. And as we ride along with the psalmist through the switchbacks and the setbacks, the trials and the troubles of his life, I imagine him pulling over at verse 14, looking directly into our eyes and saying, he will not forsake his people. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? We will not take this drive any further till you nod your head. Yes, do you understand this? God will not forsake you. Do you believe that? Yes. I'll put it back in park the moment you say yes. I'll put it back in drive the moment you say yes. He will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. What an amazing promise. What an amazing promise found in a, a context, a complicated world that Psalm 94 was. He will not forsake his people. And he knows who are his people. He never loses sight or track of his people. The New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 Verses 5 and 6 picks up on this reality and expands on it, showing us how it should affect us. He says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Does that sound familiar? It should. I just said it. Psalm 94. So we can confidently say this is our part in light of God not forsaking his people. Okay, God won't forsake us. How should that affect me? Here's how it should affect me. We should confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. And once again, friends, we must remember that the real power found in trusting in the promises of God like this one comes when we connect them to the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ we see all the promises of God personified. Now, how do we know that God won't forsake his people? 
How do we know that God won't abandon or lose sight or lose track of his people in a world where there's a lot of people claiming to be his people whose behaviors aren't in line with what he says his people's behaviors should be in line with? We know this promise to be true by looking by faith into the face of Jesus Christ. So who am I to God while enemies taunt? The psalmist says that if I'm submitting my life to his training, to God's training, to God's teaching, then I am blessed despite whatever trials or troubles, switchbacks or setbacks I'm experiencing, or even whatever discipline I'm facing. That leads to our fourth and final point point this morning. Where is God when enemies attack? Where is God while my enemies attack? Verses 16 to 23. For the first time in this remarkable chapter, the psalmist uses the word my. First prayed, he then rebuked his enemies, followed by an address to all of God's people, an encouragement to the downcast. But now in this final point, he's getting quite personal. He's providing us with his own testimony of renewed confidence in the promises of God. He's telling us a story of how the loud taunts of the enemy nearly rattled his confidence in the firm promises of God. But Because of God's firm and unfailing grip upon him, he has renewed hope. He has renewed confidence. He opens up this section by showing us that God has answered his prayer from verse 2 to rise up on his behalf. He's circling back around to show us that God answers his prayers. Verse 2, he says, rise up, O judge of the earth. But notice, in our section, though God has answered his prayer, it is not exactly the way that he originally asked it, or the way that he originally intended it. He asked for the Lord to rise up and to repay his enemies for their works against him. But instead, he says that God rises up, verse 16, and sustains Instead of God rising up and repaying his enemies in that moment, he has found God to rise up, but he's sustaining the psalmist. Not repaying the enemies at this moment, he's sustaining the psalmist. Instead of immediately repaying the proud, the psalmist now understands that there will be a delayed judgment for the enemies of God's people. And tell them God is able to keep his people from falling into despair. So friend, I have a question for you. Do you recognize the sustaining hand, the sustaining grace of God in your life? If you do, and you should, because if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, that is evidence of the sustaining grace of God. Not a one of us woke up this morning a Christian because we wanted to be a Christian. We woke up a Christian because he sustains us as Christians. 
The same way that he sustains the universe by the word of his power, he sustains our confidence in Christ. Day by day, moment by moment, minute by minute, he sustains the Christian's confidence in Christ. So my encouragement to you If you recognize the sustaining grace of God in your life, and let me say again, you should, my encouragement to you is to never underestimate the power of God in sustaining a weak and weary Christian through life. Listen, friends, there is as much power in the sustaining grace of God as there is in the saving grace of God. As much power that's present in the saving grace of God, there is equally as much power in the sustaining grace of God. So you may be saying, I don't really see God's power on display in my life. I hear these people talking about God's power. I see stories from the past, from scriptures of God's power. Well, I just want to turn your attention to the fact that you're still a Christian. To the fact that though you've suffered, though you've been disappointed, though you haven't had the fulfillment of all your heart's desires, you're still a Christian. And that is the fruit and the effect of the sustaining power and the grace of God in your life. That is real power. Real power. Verses 17 to 18, he says that if the Lord had not been his help, getting a window into his testimony about how he almost lost confidence because of the loud taunts of the enemy. He almost almost lost his confidence in the Lord. The Lord had not been his help, then his soul would have lost hope. And when he thought his foot was slipping, there he found the Lord to catch him. And to keep him. Man, what a sweet reminder to us this morning. That it is not our strong grasp upon God that keeps us to the end. It is not our strong grasp upon God that keeps us to the end. It's God's strong grasp upon us. His unfailing, unwavering, steadfast love and commitment from our call to worship this morning. It's that reality that should inform our confidence that we will indeed make it to the end. Because it's not about our confidence in him, our strong grasp upon him. It is about his grasp upon us. He preserves us through every trial. He keeps us through every trouble. He guides us through every switchback and setback, every twist and turn in life. Those that we anticipate, those that we don't expect. And then in verse 19, he tells us that he has learned a spiritual secret. When the cares of his heart became many, what did he do? He says this. I just I love this phrase. When the cares of his heart became many, he says in verse 19, your consolations cheered my soul. So what did he do when his heart was weighed down by the trials and troubles of his life? 
He looked to the only place that you should look, to God's word. He looked to God's word, your consolations, your promises, your stories, the stories like Piper said in the opening illustration, the stories in the Bible that help inform not just our minds, but our bones, that God is indeed coursing our life. Man, that's the kind of man that I want to be. It's the kind of confidence that I want to have. What about you, friend? Do you have this kind of confidence in God's word? Do you want to have this kind of confidence in God's word? A man of spiritual, a woman of spiritual maturity is a person who learns to flee to God's word alone for refuge. And I love this philosophical question he asked himself in verse 20. We get a window into his mind, into the, to his, his conflicted mind, his conflicted heart, trying to make sense of this reality that he lived in, a reality in which people claiming to be God's people were powerful, Influential, which seems to be an indication that God's blessing them, but it makes no sense to his mind because they're not living according to God's word. These people are crushing, killing, and oppressing the pious and genuine people of God who don't have any worldly stature, influence, or power at all. he's, He's conflicted. He's looking at these two realities. He's saying, I don't get it. This doesn't make sense to my mind. And so it's almost like we get a window into his thought process in verse 20 when he says this. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute. Lord, could you really side with the wicked? No, of course not. It's the emphatic answer. No, of course not. And despite what they may say with their mouths, the psalmist has learned to have a profound personal confidence in the Lord who is his rock. Verse 22. And now he has learned to wait on him and him alone to repay the wicked. Verse 23. Instead of trying to make sense of all the complexities, you know what he's done? His soul has finally settled into a place of rest. His soul has finally settled into a place of faith. What I don't understand, I don't understand these complexities, but what I do understand is that you are my rock. I trust in you. I abide by your word. I submit to your authoritative word to your training, to your instruction, to your discipline, I submit to that. At the exact same time, I'm waiting for you and you alone to repay the wicked for what they've done. You are the one who vindicates, not me. I don't harbor bitterness. I don't harbor resentment. I let that go, and I trust you and you alone to do what you and you alone are able to do. Now, over the past few weeks, I've been studying the book of Mark in preparation for the year-long series that we're going to begin, be starting next week. It's been a a sweet time as I've been 
studying my heart in the book of Mark and saturating my mind in the gospel of Mark. And as I studied the context and situation surrounding the book of Mark throughout the last couple of weeks, it sounded so much like Psalm 94 that I had to teach it this morning. I had to preach this text this morning because it sounds so much like the context in which Jesus arrived in, in his own day, the day in which Mark is recording for us. Just as God's people in this psalm are being oppressed and distressed by, God's, by people claiming to be God's people, so too were countless people in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders were guilty of withholding mercy and grace of God from the most vulnerable people. They had elevated themselves to a position of spiritual superiority and were puffed up with pride. They were the arrogant of Psalm 94. But when Jesus started ministering, it kind of sets the stage, doesn't it? Sets the stage for the, the tension that was in the air when Jesus started ministering. When he started ministering, he brought liberty to the captive. He brought sight to the blind. He brought hearing to the deaf. He preached the good news of God's love, of God's steadfast and unwavering, unfailing love for sinners and his plan to rescue them and to redeem them. Jesus is the answer asked for in Psalm 94. He is all the promises of God's provision and protection personified. Or as the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So as we close this morning's study, my hope is that it whets the appetite for your heart to begin studying the book of Mark next week. And most importantly, I hope that this psalm helps to deepen your conviction. That though the loud taunts of the enemy come forth, may they never rattle your confidence in the firm promises of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord, it's remarkable that we get to live on the days this side of the cross, days in which we have the Spirit, we have His help. We have His help to take these promises and to apply them to our lives. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for, Father, thank you for sending and sacrificing your Son on the cross for my sins. Lord, I praise you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.